Howdy. Welcome to another week of Canon Calls. I'm your host, Jake McAtee, and this week I had the pleasure to speak with Kevin Belmonte, who wrote Defiant Joy, which is a literary biography of G.K. Chesterton that I read and enjoyed immensely. We talked about Chesterton's fame in America, his literary friends who were also sort of enemies, as well as going into the influence that he had on Tolkien and Lewis and others. If you spent any time around canon and our content, you'll know that we are big fans of Chesterton. If you'd like a place to start, go get our copy of Orthodoxy in our Christian Heritage series. It's the only copy in the entire world where Chesterton's head is on fire. You can get that at canonpress.com. And now, meet Kevin Belmonte. All right, welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. Uh, Today's guest is Kevin Belmonte, who has written a plethora of works about Chesterton, one of which today we're going to talk about Defiant Joy. But then also, uh, we'll sort of work our way to a new book that will uh, that, that doesn't have a release date yet called Chesterton's Tavern. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on and hanging out with us. Thank you, Jake. It's a pleasure to be with you. So I've had uh, people on to talk about Chesterton before. I've very much benefited from Chesterton and, and sort of uh, the roller coaster that is that giant person. Do you mind giving us just a quick brief sketch of who he is? That's a tall order. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> well, his dates, and it's fascinating. I wanted to bring this up anyway. Uh, he and another very famous British writer, British statesman, share uh, the same birth year, 1874. He and Winston Churchill were born in the same year. Oh, wow. So that helps us to know when his life began. And uh, he died in 1936. And in those years, uh, scholars say that he wrote some 78 or 80 or so books. It's uh, some of them were sort of recasts of early material, but, you know, a very substantial body of work. And what kinds of books did he write? Well, everything from biography to detective stories, we think of the Father Brown mysteries, to poetry, to novels, to works of literary criticism. He was what we used to know a long time ago in the phrase, a man of letters, someone like Samuel Johnson, who just had great success and influence in many different fields of literature. So that's sort of a a brief sketch. He was a journalist when he got started, but uh, he ranged very quickly into published works and uh, had quite a, an influence in his day and time. I love it. Um, one thing I thought we could get started on in terms of a biographical note is much is said about how relevant Chesterton still is in terms of topics that he would bring up or fight with. But one thing that stuck out to me that came through in Defiant Joy and in other places of biography is how sort of modern his spiritual formation was. Uh, his parents weren't Christians, but by all accounts, a good uh, upbringing. And then sort of as he was in school, he entered a, a sort of a time of existentialism and despair. Could you talk about that aspect of Chesterton's life a bit? Absolutely. It uh, was very central to his formation, as you point out. Uh, as a young person, grew up in a, in a moral home, a nominally Christian home. Uh, there were trappings of Christianity, nominal Anglicanism, about his growing up time, although his parents were somewhat skeptical, somewhat agnostic in their own inclinations. But uh, he had what appears by all events, other than the death of his sister, which was a, a terrible tragedy. Uh, in all other respects, he seemed to have had a very happy childhood, which was perhaps the exception more than the rule in those days, the late 1800s. Grew up uh, admiring his father, who used to read to him when he was little, and he got the music and rhythm of poetry and prose through his father. And his mother was uh, very bright, and she also she had a, a wonderful wit. So uh, when we think of Sally's of Chestertonian wit, we think that comes down from uh, his mother's branch of the family tree. They were a remarkable couple, and they cared about him and his younger brother, Cecil, very much. As to his own time of testing as a young person and how he came to faith, we have to remember that that was the time, where, just before the turn of the century, a time the 1890s was famous in the UK as a time of widespread pessimism in literature and art. 
And Chesterton, because he was a sensitive person, because he trained as an artist as a young man at the Slade School of Art, he was a gifted uh, sketch artist, and he also did uh, painting and caricatures, that kind of thing. He had quite a, quite a gift, a remarkable gift. Uh, because he was involved in the world of art and literature, he read voraciously. These currents of pessimism really affected him, and he was trying to make sense of it all, as so many young people do. And he became very grateful when he encountered the works of writers like Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, Robert Browning, the poet, and Walt Whitman. And these writers for him were remarkable in that they kind of stood against the current of pessimism, and they were very affirming in the things that they wrote about life and literature and experience. And that sense of the world being a special place, that there were all kinds of clues scattered throughout our existence that point to something better, that spoke very meaningfully to him. And his spiritual transformation was a very gradual one. Uh, it started in the, uh, the 1890s and was pretty much complete about the year, oh, 1903, 1904, when he got married and his wife was quite devout. And I think that she, along with other friends, really helped him. He said he hung on to religion by one thin thread of thanks. So in addition to his wife and other friends that he knew personally, there were writers like George MacDonald, whose story, The Princess and the Goblin, Chesterton tells us, was really crucial. The idea that there was a light in the far distant castle that shone in the mountains, that was a real metaphor. That kind of imagery for him sort of held out the idea that hope was something there to be discovered. Indeed, he did discover it and placed his faith in Christianity, but uh, his growing up time was tough at times as he wrestled with all these currents of artistic and literary pessimism. He came through it, and I think it helped make him who he was, but it was a difficult time to be sure. You said it was sort of gratitude that was maybe spurned on by different authors he was reading, uh, and, and as sort of his fall quote-unquote, a fall, but basically just that fall into despair and dread as he was a part of that world as a student at the Slade School. I feel like his, that sort of redemption is sort of a perfect remedy to the modern fall, which I feel like is still very much around today as you uh, look in the news. It's sort of like, man, gratitude is one of the rarest things uh, of all time, which makes Justin even more fresh to read. Could you talk a little bit about that gratitude. So you mentioned, you know, he came across it as he read Stevenson and the rest, but what, what was the nature of that gratitude? What, what did that mean? Well, he, he used many phrases to describe it. He, he had what he, in one phrase he described as the mystical minimum of gratitude. <laughs> the idea that uh, existence itself, something that we take for granted, you know, we wake up in the morning, we go about our business, uh, and we often don't step back just a little bit in our times where we're alone and we're reflective to just think that existence itself is something extraordinary. When he writes about the novel Robinson Crusoe, for example, he says, you know, the thing about that story, we think of it as an adventure story, that kind of thing. But for him, it was one of those things that reinforced this idea of a mystical minimum of gratitude, the idea that you might realize you're actually alive and be grateful for. Think about Crusoe's story, shipwreck, and he manages to salvage, you know, quite a few items from the ship before it actually breaks up in a storm after he's shipwrecked. And each of these relics, Chesterton said, well, they were relics of something originally good, something originally wise. And he, he used that as a metaphor. You wouldn't think that there was sort of a poetry, a uh, metaphysics in the story of Robinson Crusoe, but for Chesterton, it was there. And the idea was that we all of us are involved with the fall of man, and we think about it in terms of you know, original sin, that kind of thing. We're all survivors of the wreck of a golden ship which went down before the beginning of the world. And that's just a very powerful image with him. I, I was awfully surprised to find it in Robinson Crusoe, but Chesterton has always had, for me anyway, that ability to help you see something with new eyes. For those of us who are in the family of faith, for those of us who are believers, um, that might be so interwoven with our sense of who we are, we have difficult getting distance from it. But for Chesterton, you know, there were all kinds of clues scattered in the writers he admired, the books he read, the poetry he read, the works of art that he thought a lot of. He would 
look at these things, he would read these books, he would look at these works of art, and he would come away with things that really helped him anchor his sense of who he was as a believer and the reasons that he had for hope. Yeah, it does seem he was able to achieve a sense of differentiation from the world and his and himself. And by that, I just mean um, it seems with it the nihilism and despair and everything else, you get so the navel gazing that happens. You're not able to pull yourself away or to get a good look at anything. John Piper said this on reading G.K. Chesterton. He said, "I will keep coming back to anyone who helps me see and be astonished at what is in front of my face." Anyone who can help me heal from the disease of seeing they do not see. That seems to kind of get at what you were saying in terms of like, and I don't know what that is. Do you think gratitude plays a role in that, that you're able to step away from something, see it for what it is, which is a blessing like life? Uh, What do you think that is? You can't do much better than Dr. Piper's reflections. (laughs) I know. I didn't mean to set uh, you up like that. (laughs) No, no worries. Uh, I'm happy to, uh, to follow in his footsteps. No, I, I think I look to another writer uh, who you may know and, and have read, Frederick Beekner, and he said that uh, Chesterton, when he came through his, his dark night of the soul and, and had his embrace of faith, he was filled with an enormous sense of need of someone or something to thank. Hmm. And I think that that's, that gets very close to it in concert with the, uh, the wonderful quote that you read there from Dr. Piper. Chesterton If you have gone through the kind of despair that he experienced when you wonder, you know, if existence itself is really real, I mean, someone who's delved deeply into it is another writer, Gary Wills, who's written widely about Chesterton. He has a wonderful book, probably about uh, 400 pages long, called Chesterton. And, you know, he, he plums the depths of Chesterton's crowded hour, that dark hour. And, you know, Chesterton really, he, he went down into the depths. He, uh, he was, some of his friends were worried for his sanity, and hmm. some thought that he might have been suicidal. So it was not one of those passing phases that we sort of think of when young people go off to college. They encounter philosophers for the first time. They read uh, Nietzsche and others, you know, and they have this existential crisis. And it's real, but it doesn't go terribly deep. They come through it, and they realize that these are just different schools of thought, and they come through it. For Chesterton, it, it was really... This thing went close to the very heart of, of his sense of who he was and what life was really about. So when he came through it all, I think that part of what makes him special is he kept that sense of gratitude. And it expressed itself. You think of the poem, Myth Poia from Tolkien, how mm-hmm. light is refracted to many hues. That gratitude was reflected in all the different kinds of writing that he put his hand to uh, for the remainder of his life. But that sense of gratitude really, really marked who he was. And there are so many people, reviewers, other readers, other writers, uh, that picked up on that in him. And they were grateful for it because it did stand out in stark contrast uh, to, uh, to many of the writers who were famous then. And, you know, the, the thing about Chesterton is he wasn't just sort of doing his own thing off in one corner. He was very good friends with George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells and uh, the two of them were uh, very famous as skeptics, if not outright atheists, and he maintained a deeply cordial relationship with the two of them. They were very fond of Chesterton and he them, and they sort of had an ongoing conversation throughout the remainder of their lives, and uh, they respected the keen elements of Chesterton's intellect. They didn't come down, obviously, where he did in terms of things of faith. But he was someone who was able to be there in the arena of ideas with them and in their conversations and in the times when they visited one another and spent time together. Uh, He won not only a hearing for the things of faith, but they had great respect for him as a person of faith, even though that's where they didn't come down themselves. I definitely want to get back to the friends he made and especially the odd friends, especially I think today we would never think, you know, the person who I am writing against and basically just taking apart in my essays is the guy who is a good friend of mine. I feel like that's such a foreign concept. But before we kind of get into that, after his, well, after he sort of brought himself out of that despair and was slowly on his way to a, you know, a conversion via gratitude, 
he got into a journalism career. And I was hoping maybe before we got to that, could you tell us about him and his wife? Well, if ever there was a love match, it was the two of them. <laughs> uh, I have a wonderful photo of uh, GK and his wife, Frances, uh, from the Penrose Studios, probably taken in the late uh, teens, maybe right around 1920, maybe just a little before that, with their dog, Winkle, in front of their house. And I love it because it says so many things. I mean, first of all, he was so tall and she was so much shorter than he was. But she's holding the dog, and they just look very, very happy there at their home in Beaconsfield, uh, which is also where Edmund Burke lived, by the way. Mm. Uh, they just seem so happy in their sort of circle of domesticity there. And, uh, you know, I think for, for him, you hear the phrase falling in love at first sight. And when I think about the way that they met, he, he kind of, the way he describes it, he looked at her and it was really all over. He knew there would be nobody else for him. They, they didn't even exchange any words the first time their eyes met, but it, there just was such a knowing look between the two of them. Uh, it's really something extraordinary. And in the Ballad of the White Horse, which is this great epic poem, uh, C.S. Lewis admired it deeply, among many others. Uh, but in that poem, he says, uh, you know, you brought the cross to me in the verses that are dedicatory to the actual poem itself. And, uh, you know, I think both in terms of the love they shared, but the faith that she brought to the table that spoke so meaningfully to him and that really helped to complete hmm. his spiritual transformation. Those are two of the deepest debts that one can have uh, when you find a help me to have a wife who is a friend of the heart, but then also someone who is, uh, helps point you more meaningfully to things of faith. It's uh, his debt to her and his regard for her was uh, was deep and total. You know, Chesterton wrote so much and about so much. Why do you think we we don't get a lot about Francis in his writing? Why why do you think that is? Well, I think it may have more than a little to do with what we think of as typical British reserve. Hmm. Uh, some things that are felt deeply, and some things that involve uh, the love of your life are things that are really only meant to be shared between two. Uh, I think that feeds into it. But uh, we do have a window. If you read Macy Ward's wonderful, big, thick volume on Gilbert Keith Chesterton that was published in 1943, because George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells were still alive at that time, she was able to correspond with them and tap their correspondence with Chesterton. Hmm. And you get these windows on what the relationship with li was like. Their home was a home that was filled with great joy as well as, you know, deep love and, and meaning, happiness. Uh, one of those windows on joy, uh, Shaw was trying to bug Chesterton into writing a play, and he eventually did. It's called Magic, and it was produced in 1913 with Shaw's help, and it had a successful run. But when Chesterton was being coy about it and saying things like, you know, I'm not really sure I'm up for this, that kind of thing. <laughs> Shaw would write these letters to Francis and say, you know, tell Gilbert if he doesn't get going and start putting pen to paper, you and I are going to run off together. Something <laughs> like that. He and Francis, uh, I think she was very grateful that uh, he had these friendships with other, you know, noted writers of the time. And she was able to enter into those friendships and be part of them. And, uh, you know, I could imagine, I could just hear her laughing. It must have been a beautiful musical laugh when she read that letter. Of course, you know, Shaw was just uh, taking the mickey, as our British friends say, and having a bit of fun. Sure. Uh, but, uh, but I think that kind of, those moments point, and you know, they pull the curtain back just a little uh, from some of the reserve that's there. So we've already sort of alluded to it several times, but do you mind telling us who George Bernard Shaw was in terms of like what he believed? as well as H.G. Wells or anyone else sort of that ultimately were very good friends of Chesterton's, but obviously on a different side of the aisle, per se. Sure. Well, uh, we'll start with Shaw, and uh, you can go ahead and prompt me about H.G. Wells when we finish with Mr. Sure, Shaw. Sure. But uh, Chesterton wrote a review, I think it was of Ivanhoe, or at least that's what Shaw said. He, he, he dealt with Sir Walter Scott and his works. And uh, Shaw read it, had no idea who Chesterton was, but was really impressed. He said, evidently, there was a new star in literature. So 
their friendship began with a moment of admiration on the part of Shaw for something Chesterton had written as a very young writer who had no reputation by that point other than a couple of modestly published books, a little book of nonsense verse, and I think maybe a first early collection of poetry. So he wasn't all that well known. But that review of Sir Walter Scott's writings caught Shaw's eye, and uh, it wasn't very long before they met one another. Of course, Shaw, we know him as a playwright, uh, just, you know, famous for having written works like Pygmalion and Major Barbara and other works that uh, are read in lit classes today. Um, Very famous as a public intellectual, someone who had a real intellectual honesty. Um, He was the kind of person who, though he may have differed from a prominent Christian intellectual like Chesterton, could voice deep respect. And I think there's something so instructive about that. Nowadays, in the public square, when there are, you know, big differences over matters of worldview, people seem to be a daggers drawn. And it's, you know, a a death-like struggle to to gain supremacy and you condemn your opponent. You know, you just, people go at it so vociferously, often just, you know, great heaps of vitriol that are expressed on either sides. Uh, and, And that just was not there with the two of them. Uh, And I think that is where their historical moment, their friendship, speaks very meaningfully to us. Uh, They had deep regard for each other. When Chesterton died, you know, fast forward all the way to 1936, Shaw wrote this beautiful letter to Chesterton's widow, Frances. And it was an allusion to the writings of John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And you think of the celestial city and the welcome of pilgrims. Shaw picked up on that imagery and said, the trumpets are sounding for Gilbert on the other side. Yep. And, you know, that's, something, that's just something so extraordinary right? Uh, that uh, Shaw, who was not a person of faith, would nonetheless pick up one of the most powerful writers for the faith to express, you know, his belief in wanting to comfort Francis that if anyone was going to have a welcome in heaven, it would be his friend. G.K. Chesterton. So, you know, I think that those kinds of moments uh, help us understand the nature of their relationship. And if I remember right, not only in words was he all very kind and, and compassionate, but also in deed. I think he told her that he, he was eager to help financially if there was anything of that kind of thing happening, that he, he would take care of it. That's right. And, uh, you know, what a, what a beautiful thing. He said, look, you know, you, you must have so many concerns that are just overwhelming you. But if you do have some unexpected need, just a line on a postcard and I'll take care of it. Love it. So, you know, that, that, I think that it's not just a, a mutual regard, Jake. I think it actually verges on a kind of love for the Chestertons as a couple that Shaw expressed in that kind of gesture. Yeah. Very powerful. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if, uh, if there's anyone out there who, who has maybe only read the works that you mentioned by Shaw and, and found him maybe uh, tough to like or enjoy. Uh, your book, which was the case for me, but your book, you know, really put me over the edge on at least respect for George Bernard Shaw in terms of his friendship with, uh, with Chesterton. So uh, definitely grateful for that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I think you'd asked about H.G. Wells, so I can talk about that. If yes, you like. please, please. Well, most of us remember H.G. Wells today for his fantasy works, uh, but I do want to touch very briefly on his great uh, work of history, the outline of history, because that's germane in the nature of their relationship. But, but we know him from the Time Machine and War of the Worlds, uh, those kinds of books, The Invisible Man. And, of course, he, he had an amazing imagination, uh, was not a person of faith at all. He was a self-described atheist. But he and Chesterton used to get together. They both loved what toy theaters, which is something that they would have uh, played with as children in the late Victorian era. And uh, they would get together, and, and Chesterton had actually designed sets and a theater and, you know, different paper cutout characters. And uh, it, it's really uh, very winsome to think of these two accomplished writers, two very prominent writers, just spending some hours on a pleasant day. Uh, indulging their imagination, setting aside their cares and responsibility, and just doing that sort of thing, or traveling together as they did, uh, you know, their, their entire families, not just the two of them. So, you know, I think that points to the, the depth of a cordial friendship there. But with regard to the outline of history, there's something I want to say about that, and then a letter 
that Wells wrote at uh, near the end of Chesterton's life. When the outline of history came out, uh, Chesterton's uh, great friend, Elaire Belloc, came out quite vociferously against it. It's really sort of answered the lists and wanted to challenge a lot of the, uh, the non-Christian moorings of that work. Uh, it's kind of a, a shorthand for... Uh, Belloc took a very different view and wasn't shy about uh, being quite pointed and actually quite cutting about it. And he and Wells had been somewhat cordial, and that really damaged any prospects for Belloc and Wells to go on being friends together. But you contrast that with Chesterton's response. And in Defiant Joy, I write that his response was basically to write The Everlasting Man. Hmm. And in that book, but also in personal correspondence, Chesterton expresses such respect and regard for the depth of learning and the keenness of Wells' intellect, and, and it's clear that their friendship was unimpaired. Yeah, they came down in different places. Uh, the Outline of History is a very different work uh, from The Everlasting Man. Uh, but both were able to make a contribution to that field of literature and stay friends. And, uh, you know, I think it's so sad that Belloc's relationship or the prospect of having one in a meaningful one with Wells was really damaged by the uh, the cutting and caustic nature of his critique of Wells' book. But then I, you know, also think of at the end of Chesterton's life, or just before that, uh, Wells wrote a, a wonderful letter. Chesterton would always come out with a special Christmas time feature for readers to enjoy, and so that arrived with the. I think it was cuttings from newspapers, that sort of thing that Chesterton had sent along to H.G. Wells, just so, almost like a Christmas card. And uh, Wells wrote back to thank him and to acknowledge it. And he said, you know, if my uh, atheology, as he called it, turns out to be wrong and your theology turns out to be right, he says, I know I can always get a welcome in heaven if I want to, because I'm a friend of GKC. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and on the one hand, you feel sad that he was he was expressing regard, uh, but he's also saying, you know, I'm not really sure I want to go to heaven. So it, it, there's a lot in that phrase, but I think what the big takeaway is for me is that although, although Wells never did make that ascent to faith, the regard that he had for Chesterton uh, is so obvious in what was said there. So just a note on that in terms of when you... Uh, I mean, 2020 has been a heck of a year. I'm sure from Maine, you can see that clearly over there. Um, yes. Wh what do you think that is? Like, do you think wh when you think, when I think about that today, there are very few examples that I could come up with, maybe not even on one hand or fill up one hand. Um, because it, it's one thing that Chesterton was that kind of man, but it also seems mm -hmm. like there was something about maybe just discourse in general that barbs from another writer would be received, and it didn't necessarily include that friendship was off the board. Is it, was, is it something like that, or what do you think, maybe the last hundred years, what, what is the difference there? That's a great question. Uh, and if I had to try and nail it down to just something that we could sort of wrap our heads around fairly quickly, I think that there was a much more widespread sense of human worth back then. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, Chesterton, uh, Shaw, and Wells, they all thought, you know, regardless of their worldview differences, that someone with whom you might have a disagreement was nonetheless still another human being. So that kind of basic regard for the person with whom you might be having a conversation, even a, an agree-to-disagree kind of conversation, to condemn them, to say that they were evil if they didn't agree with you, to just go nuclear in the ways that so many of our modern controversies and uh, disputes seem to be. You know, I think we've lost something. Uh, many people read Shaw, they read Wells. Hopefully, many of them will read Chesterton too, though he's not as well known as I wish he were. Uh, but, you know, to read them is to discover something that we've lost. and. We I think we have to be very careful about thinking that with all of our technology and the things that make our life wonderful in ways they can't begin to imagine, you know, the common grace of technology is a, is a marvelous thing. But to think that we've somehow progressed 
morally, uh, beyond where they were in some ways. Uh, I think their lives, their friendships, the regard that they had for one another can bring us up short. At least it's instructive and points us to something better. There are other examples in modern life where people actually do have cordial regard. I, I think, for example, of the way that uh, the late Justice Antonin Scalia had deep regard for late Justice Ginsburg. Their friendship was famous, even though they came down in very different places about many different things. Um, that would be one modern example that I would point to of a way that people who looked at the world very differently in our own time found a way to have kind regard for each other and their families. So there are examples in the modern era, but I do think that the nature of Chesterton's friendship with Shaw and Wells, among others, they were other uh, famous skeptics with whom he had a good friendship and, and they spent time together. But I, I think that uh, what we've been talking about with Chesterton and his friends is something that we can sort of look at, learn from, and hopefully carry forward. Yeah, agreed. And, and it, I wonder about it because there's the when folks say the writings of Chesterton are so relevant, it is because, in, in a sense, Chesterton was writing against very uh, horrible ideas that were going on, um, and ones that Wells and and Shaw had, and you see in other places he writes uh, fervently against uh, eugenics and the rest. But it seems like, in a sense, that those were still just these ideas. Soon, I mean, uh, you can look at world history and know that soon that some of those would be very well would be put in place, and and those thoughts would become actions in terrible, terrible ways. But I wonder, just like a hundred years later, if those kind of ideas have, you know, if basically the the if the yeast is leavened the loaf, um, and in ways that uh, we can't really put the toothpaste back. But I'm curious in terms of we talked about sort of about his friends who were also enemies in his writings, enemies in a very limited sense there. But um, we've brought up Tolkien and Lewis a little bit. We never have an account of him meeting either of those two, do we? Mm. Would that we did. Uh, Lewis did write about it near the end of his life. Uh, I was thinking uh, the name of his correspondent escapes me just now, but a gentleman wrote to him, I think it was right around 1962 or so, so not long before Lewis died, asking if Lewis had ever met Chesterton. And he said, no, we never did meet. He said, but I suspect the things that made me like Chesterton made us both like George MacDonald. Hmm. Which is really great because in what, a sentence or two, you have Lewis expressing great regard for Chesterton. And, and really, Alistair McGrath, a wonderful Oxford scholar and apologist, has picked up on this, that Lewis really inherited Chesterton's mantle as an apologist for the faith in the public square. I think that's certainly very true. Um, but uh, also to think of uh, how much Lewis admired the everlasting man. Uh, I discovered in his correspondence that there are numerous references. And so you have Lewis, the author of Mere Christianity, basically suggesting that correspondents read the everlasting man like people today recommend reading Mere Christianity. Mm -hmm. So that was striking to me. But then the affinity that uh, Lewis put his finger on uh, with George MacDonald uh, is a wonderful line in one of Lewis's letters where he says that I was brought back, that is to being brought back to faith, largely by the influence of two writers. And he said Chesterton and George MacDonald. So for the two of them, even though they came from very different faith perspectives, Catholicism for Chesterton, and then also a sort of a McDonald was broadly speaking Protestant, but he was a little a little bit off from traditional Protestantism on a couple three doctrines that are important. Right. But nevertheless, you know, two people that you wouldn't think would necessarily be very complimentary actually ended up being very complimentary when it came to Lewis and helping him in different ways come back to faith. And uh, I think that when you have Lewis saying that what I learned to love in Chesterton was his goodness, <laughs> you have him using the same kind of language with regard to MacDonald. So there's that affinity there. And lastly, with Lewis, Lewis uh, said to George Sayer once, you know, don't you love the Ballad of the White Horse? Just when you read passages, and he could recite some of them, that it just grabs you and shakes you and makes you want to cry. It's such a moving and powerful epic. I, I find that. 
Kevin, I'm so <laughs> mad then, that I let you talk first because I was literally going to bring up, I recently cracked Jack, which is George Sayers' biography, and that, that opening scene of him walking to his new professor, who is C.S. Lewis, and not going in immediately, but hearing Lewis talk to someone who kept, he kept calling Tullers. It's a, it's a very fantastic scene. And then, yes, as he's pressing him about poetry, not only did he say that about the Battle of the White Horse, but then didn't he, didn't he break into reciting it with that big booming voice of his? He did, and I'd have paid good money to hear it. That's what I thought. <laughs> yeah, same. Absolutely same. You, you wish that you could be a fly on the wall for those kinds of moments. But, uh, well, with regard to Tolkien, uh, you have, I think it's in the essay on fairy stories, Tolkien picks up on some of his indebtedness to Chesterton, which was there. He read The Ballad of the White Horse. And although after his initial reading, he, his ardor for it cooled a little bit because Chesterton was not as fastidious with regard to historical accuracy uh, as Tolkien was. I recently read that letter as Edith was reading it, and he comments on it, I think, to his son about having his ardor for it cooling a bit. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's one of those moments that you can appreciate because some people are afraid to depart company with somebody, and it's really rather straightforward. I mean, we know what a painstaking craftsman Tolkien was, and we can admire just the way that his whole working out of his mythic world was so detailed, so involved, uh, and, and that's just something that, it's a kind of artistry that uh, kind of makes me think of how you build a cathedral. It can take a hundred years to do it. Right. Um, it's just such a level of detail. For Chesterton, tapping into the myth itself was key, and if you had to blur the lines a little bit between matters of historical accuracy and service to the story, and I think that there's a lot to be said uh, for an affinity between Tolkien and Chesterton as people who undertook writing epic poetry. Uh, we think of the books that uh, the late Christopher Tolkien has published of his father's poetry, you know, posthumously that have done so much to enrich our understanding of how Middle-earth came to be and the, the different chapters in the history that uh, are just so marvelous to, to go deeply into. Chesterton tried to do the same thing with the Ballad of the White Horse, and for him it was the most sustained, the most, most focused, most concentrated pouring of his poetic gift that he seems to have undertaken. And he really took pains over this work of poetry. And, you know, Lewis was as fine a judge of poetry as we have. I think if you take Lewis's reaction to the Ballad of the White Horse and then Tolkien, who realized that obviously Chesterton was a very gifted poet, you know, he just parted company a little bit in terms of uh, the way Chesterton went about what he did. But they were tilling the same sort of landscape, I think, is the way to look at it. Absolutely. And, and it's fair to say, too, that that, similar, that that same temperament in Tolkien separated him from his friend Lewis as well. So it basically hashes out about how you would think it would, I, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's very fair. And, uh, of course, you know, that's one of the great things about appreciating all of these writers. You know, they don't ha all have to come down in the same place about the same kinds of writing. You can appreciate their differences as well as their similarities. They all bring something special to the table. One, one question before we move on to, the, to, your, to your other book is um, I was very surprised in Defiant Joy, to hear about his fame in America. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's neat. Uh, I suppose in some ways it's analogous to the kind of vogue that C.S. Lewis has here now. Um, I I've talked with British friends, and some of them have, have commented, you know, in public forums, interviews, podcasts, radio interviews, that sort of thing, that the Lewis, because he's such a known quantity there in the UK, is perhaps not as fully appreciated at his full worth as he could be. Now, it's changed more recently with the unveiling of his memorial there in Westminster Abbey, and, and that's uh, as it should be. But I think that uh, Chesterton, just as, as Lewis was, was taken up very gratefully by an American readership. And uh, he came here twice, and I think you talked about that in your chat with Dale Alquist, um, he had, had a wonderful reception. As a matter of fact, the only real film footage that we have of Chesterton is in an American setting. He uh, visited Holy Cross 
uh, college there in Worcester, Massachusetts, and it's just a few fleeting seconds where we hear his voice and we see him interacting with a very boisterous group of young collegians who are thrilled to have him there. Uh, but uh, he came over here and, uh, by all accounts, really took America by storm. You know, he spent time out at Notre Dame. Uh, they just were appreciative audiences and meetings with uh, well-known critics and writers here. And I think that Vogue started fairly early on. People t- had developed a fondness for Chesterton through the written word before they had a chance to meet or hear him in person. And, and one of the people that really appreciated Chesterton as a writer was Theodore Roosevelt. Hmm. And uh, I found that a remarkable thing. They met, I think it was right around 1910. And again, you know, the, the, uh, the, the intellectual fireworks, I mean, it was, must have been such an incandescent dinner and the conversation must have sparkled between those two great minds. Uh, but he deeply admired Chesterton's work on Charles Dickens, which was published in 1906. So, you know, I think the idea of Chesterton America began fairly early in his writing career and it persisted right up to the end of his life. I, I was maybe the most shocked about how frequently and fairly and even celebratorily, celebratorily that the New York Times covered Chesterton and his work. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have to bear in mind, I mean, some of his early works, uh, some of the works we tend to associate as classics, uh, I think particularly of The Man Who Was Thursday, his amazing metaphysical thriller, as it was called, of a novel. Um, you have. Uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's daughter, uh, granddaughter, excuse me, Hildegard, writing this amazingly perceptive and glowing review of the book. I mean, she she got it. She really understood what Chesterton was on about. Um, it was kind of a, an age of anarchy, early 20th century version of Pilgrim's Progress, where things were very troubled. I mean, you think of what the powder cake that started off World War One was an assassination attempt. Right, And when Orson Welles talks about the man who was Thursday when he dramatized, he said it was the age of bomb throwing. There were anarchists blowing people up all over the place. We don't think of that time. Somehow we have a perception that it was very staid, very reserved, you know, sort of stiff upper lip time. When It was a time when things were, the currents politically, intellectually, artistically were really roiling. And so when you think of the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, it was that kind of uh, milieu that Chesterton tapped into to write the book, and Hildegard Hawthorne picked up on that. She wrote an amazing review in the New York Times, and you had you know people like Orson Welles taking it up. So they were significant writers, significant artists who connected with what Chesterton was doing in his early works. And the Times was you know one of those forums that gave his work important reviews. Right. It was truly shocking. So that's Defiant Joy. Everyone go get that. Uh, I I found that the notes, just hunting down the footnotes was was half the fun of the book. So very grateful for that. Do you want to tell me a little bit about Chesterton's Tavern, um, sort of how it came to be? And then I'm very interested to know, it's a unique form. And and what what are you uh, looking to get at with the form? Basically, why that form in terms of instead of another? Right. Well, I mean, we all want to write the books we'd like to read, so that's part of it. That's something that Tolkien and Lewis used to say to one another, you know, nobody writes the books we want to read, so I guess we'll have to write them. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I also have to, you know, uh, acknowledge uh, the fine work of Dr. Alistair McGrath in writing If I Had Lunch with C.S. Lewis, which uh, it was a Tyndall book, came out in 2014, if memory serves which was just a marvelous survey of key concepts and important writings from Lewis's works uh, through the conceit of what would be like if you met him for lunch. And you had animated conversation, extended conversation, say, in a pub setting, that kind of thing, or perhaps in Lewis's college rooms. And I thought, you know, that's a really neat conceit for a book. It allows you the freedom to, to quote from Lewis in ways that uh, are compelling without a, an extensive trawl. Uh, y- you can say things that have great pith and meaning, but you don't have to write a huge doorstopper of a book to kind of get your points across in a way that's useful for someone for whom Lewis might be a new experience. We, know we all know the Narnia films for, for younger readers, younger theater goers. 
But maybe, you know, they're a little intimidated by making a foray into the large corpus of writings that is C.S. Lewis. And so I thought on the one hand, Dr. McGrath's book was, uh, you know, fascinating conceit, but it's also very user-friendly. So I got to thinking, well, you know, Chesterton did like lunch, but he was really famous for his dinner parties. So I thought, well, why not? You know, because Chesterton was so famous as the knight errant of Fleet Street. I think that's what uh, Shaw or somebody like Bernard Shaw called him. That's where he sort of held court, held forth uh, with his slouch hat, his cape and his sword stick and uh, cut quite a, a colorful figure there. Why not see him in that setting over a series of 10 evenings and sort of tease out major concepts, contours? of his writing, but also writers whom he admired and why he found them instructive and meaningful. And so that's kind of the uh, the overall uh, series of catalysts that uh, had me put pen to paper. Love it. And folks can just stay tuned on that. It's not out yet and no release date yet, but stay tuned. And essentially when it does, I would love to make sure our folks know where to find it. Thank you very much. Um, I asked this of Mr. Alquist, so uh, you may have seen it coming, but you've done so much on Chesterton. You've got several other books on him and and sort of getting to know him over all these years. What do you think you think he would like you? (laughs) Well, I hope so. You know, it's interesting. I I mentioned in the uh, prefatory pages for Defiant Joy that uh, two streams of Christian faith tradition come down to me in terms of my own upbringing. My mom was raised in a Baptist setting, and my dad was raised in a Catholic setting. And uh, that whole dynamic uh, was there in the lives of my great-grandparents as well. Uh, My great-grandmother on my Irish side of the family, my mom's side of the family, uh, was uh, Roman Catholic. She was there from Boston, where a lot of the Irish settled after they emigrated in the late 1800s. And she met my blue-blood Protestant great-grandfather when he was attending business school there uh, right around 1910 or so, and they met and married, and somehow they found a way to make it work. And so although my own tradition is a Protestant faith tradition, because I have so many Catholic relatives, uh, I really wanted to help a more evangelical readership, uh, friends on the Protestant side right. of the Christian family, appreciate Chesterton, because there there are so many things there that just speak so meaningfully to our Christian experience. And he, you know, he started out for many years. He himself was an Anglican before he converted. So it's, it's kind of part of his story, too. Sure. But I, I would hope, you know, for those reasons, he might see something of a kindred spirit there in terms of my personal journey of faith and the background that flowed into it and his own. But then I'd like to think that anyone who loved to laugh, anyone who cared deeply about great works of art, Anyone who loved to read books that help you appreciate the world around you with new eyes, uh, those things are evergreen. They're things I deeply appreciate. So I suspect if we were to have a dinner together, the conversation would be pretty one-sided. I just would want to pick his brain and, and not say very much at all. But <laughs> I was going to say, you know, I, I actually think maybe Chesterton's a bit of a, a throwaway answer on this one, just because I think he would have been effusive and charming with, with anyone he, he was with. I do think the sticklers are, are the Lewis and Tolkien. You know, I think they're a bit more of the antisocial type. So I, I think Chesterton's a throwaway. I think usually, I think he would probably enjoy most everyone he was with. So, Yeah, no, I, I think you're onto something there. Although Lewis and Tolkien could be very charming. Uh, you know, I think in their academic settings, they tended to be a bit more staid and traditional. And that's kind of came with the territory. But with regard to Chesterton, I think you're spot on. He he had that ability when he met people to sort of metaphorically come up alongside them as you're walking down the sidewalk and put an arm around the shoulder and, you know, let's, let's share a bit of the road together. Let's walk. Let's talk about things that matter and compare notes. That's the kind of thing that whenever I think about him, it, that, that comes to the fore, those kinds, of, uh, those kinds of thoughts, those kinds of themes with regard to the kind of person he was come to the fore pretty quickly. and. Uh, you know, he, he had a a deep vein of charity and kindness. You know, I, I think that anyone who spends any time with his books realizes that although he talks about some very complex concepts sometimes, and although he's not shy about talking about sober things in life, some difficult things that we all have to contend with, 
That sense of gratitude, I think, not only shaped his own personal journey, but I think it shaped the way he interacted with other people to a great degree as well. Couldn't agree more. Kevin, where, where would you recommend folks get your books? And then also, where, where would you want folks to start with, with, uh, with your books? Oh, well, you're too kind. I would start with uh, the first two, Defiant Joy, which is the literary biography. It sort of traces Chesterton's life through the unfolding of the books, the major works that he published, and follows him in that sort of a way. And that's available not only as a paperback uh, from Thomas Nelson, HarperCollins, but also on audio. And my friend Rob Dean, a wonderful actor who did his MFA at Yale, has read Defiant Joy for audio, which is available from Blackstone for those who are better listeners than readers. But then the companion volume, uh, which was a great thing, the quotable Chesterton, I'd finished Defiant Joy and my editor at Thomas Nelson, HarperCollins, or my then editor, uh, Joel Miller, called and said, look, you know, have you by any chance been squirreling away any Chesterton quotes that we could put into a book that would be the Chestertonian version of the quotable C.S. Lewis? And, you know, I was thrilled that he called. I was actually on vacation when he called. <laughs> and uh, so I ended up with a companion volume. But we have, I think it's something like well over 800 quotes. I mean, it's, it's wow. quite a large book. It's just about 400 pages. Wow. And they vary in size, you know, from the one-liners, the aphorisms, to the more extended passages. Uh, group by subject, alphabetically. So that's, the, I think that's the best place to begin. Uh, and they, uh, they complement each other visually as well. Uh, I was very honored that they tapped to the British caricature artist, John Springs, to do the covers. And uh, he'd done work for the New York Times Book Review. I remember seeing them so well in the, in the 90s and the early 2000s and Time, Vogue, Rolling Stone. He, he's done very widely recognized work, and, and probably still does for all I know, because he's been in quite demand, but he was commissioned to do the covers. So not only do you have uh, sort of a journey, both through Chesterton's prose in a quotable way, but then also the literary biography, but you had uh, a couple of original works of art that were commissioned for the covers. So I'm just so pleased. It was such a wonderful surprise to, to discover that about those two books. So they're they have a special place for me. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I can highly recommend Defiant Joy. And of course, since it's, it is a quote, or it is a book of, of quotes of Chesterton, I think I can recommend that, that other book as well. So, Kevin, thank you so much for your time. We'd love to have you back on anytime you'd like. And we're eager to see that new book published. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jake. It's been a pleasure to be with you. <laughs> 